We're in Luke chapter 16, the parable of the unrighteous steward. This is a story, a parable that's unique to Luke. A lot of the this sort of middle part of Luke is unique to Luke, and so it's a it's nice to see Luke's perspective on things and how he enhances our knowledge of our Savior. Let me read this right now, Luke 16, verses 1 to 13. Now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down and quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, Who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, as we begin looking at this, some commentators think it's strange that Jesus would use someone in a parable like this steward as a sort of positive example. But if we take it as it is and don't try to read in a bunch of other things, I think it makes sense. And we'll look at that difficulty a little more later. But let's look first at verse 1. We see the possessions squandered. Now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. Now, It says here he was saying to his disciples, and this shifts from the tax collectors and sinners, verse 1 of chapter 15, uh, and then the Pharisees and scribes, he's speaking to them, and now he's speaking to his disciples. And we don't think of the disciples as being just the twelve, but those disciples of Christ, those who are following Christ, who are listening to him at this point. And this may be a separate occasion, or it may be the same occasion, where he's sort of focused on the the Pharisees and the scribes with the parable of the prodigal son, and now he's going back to the tax collectors and sinners talking about the the children of light, as we'll see later. But the Pharisees here are, are still listening. We see verse 14, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. So you can picture a sort of mixed multitude here. We have the tax collectors and sinners, those who are really listening to Jesus, wanting to understand what he has to say, and then the Pharisees sort of listening in too, to find a way to accuse Jesus in what he is saying or to scoff at him. Now, the setting here is that there was a rich man who had a manager or a steward, and the steward has a very important position. His job is to take care of his employer's possessions. 
And we don't know exactly what made this man rich. Usually in these days, uh, a rich man was rich in possessions, not necessarily cash rich, but he has uh, lots of land, lots of flocks and so forth. And so he may have been an absentee landlord. He had these large holdings of land and people might rent property from him. And while this landlord is away, the steward's in charge of collecting the money, making sure that the, the properties are run correctly. And if this rich man is an absentee landlord, it's even more important to have a trustworthy steward because the rich man isn't there to oversee what's going on day to day. And this manager, it says here, was, was doing a, a bad job. And maybe he wasn't being fraudulent, but just careless with his master's money. It says in verse 1 that he was squandering the rich man's possessions. You might recall back in Luke 15, it's the same word used of the prodigal son. This prodigal son squandered his estate with loose living. So as the, and that has the idea of wasting, just dissipating, like you're throwing money out to people, wasting it like that. And it's bad to squander your own money, but it's worse to squander someone else's money, isn't it? Especially when it's your job and your duty to be a good steward. That was his one job. You have these sort of things on the internet. You had one job. He had one job to take care of his master's possessions, and he wasn't doing a good job of it. In fact, he was doing a, a very poor job of it. And I think of this bad steward, and I think the think of the sort of opposite in Joseph. Remember Joseph in Genesis 39? It says, Joseph found favor in Potiphar's sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he, that is Potiphar, left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. That's that's a good position for a boss to be in, right? You give your, your job to a, to a subordinate, to underling, and they take care of everything. And he, Potiphar could just sit back and relax and, and do what he needs to do. So Joseph was a faithful steward, and this man in Luke 16 is the opposite. He's sort of the anti-Joseph in his stewardship. And so the steward's boss, this rich man, isn't happy. Understandably, he hears a report that this man was squandering his possessions And so now there is an accounting required, verse 2. He, that is the rich man, called the manager and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. This rich man has heard bad things about his steward, so the steward better explain himself. In effect, he's saying, Go get the books and show me how you've managed my money. And this steward, this manager, has a little time to prepare himself for the full accounting. And what is he going to do? But we see his shrewd response in verse 3, down to verse 7. The manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write 80. So this manager is not up to physical labor and doesn't want to beg. Remember, he's been an important man as a 
steward for a, a very rich man's estate. And so he couldn't stand the humiliation to be a, a beggar at this point. In verse 4, he says, I know what I shall do. Here we have a, a light bulb that goes off. And I thought of an analogy, and if you don't understand it, that's okay. But I was reminded of how the Grinch stole Christmas. Remember, the, the Grinch has an idea. It says, the Grinch got an idea, an awful idea. The Grinch had a wonderful, awful idea. And if you've seen the cartoon, you remember he has this big smile that sort of grows in his face as he thinks of this wonderful, awful idea. And I kind of picture that smile on the face of this steward. He's in a he's in a bind. He's stuck. He's He may be thrown out in the street. He may go to jail. But he's got an idea. It's a wicked idea, but it's a shrewd idea. It's a very smart idea in a worldly sense. He has no future with his master, but he can ingratiate himself to his master's debtors. And then, it says, verse 4, they will welcome me into their homes. Maybe he can find a new job or at least get food and lodging for a while. So he's planning ahead for his future at the expense of his, his employer. So it says he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And the implication here is there's more than just two. Two are mentioned, but there could be any number of debtors to this wealthy man. And he brings them all in one at a time quickly to ingratiate himself with them. And who are these debtors? We don't know for sure they owed the the rich man something. Now, maybe they had borrowed and had to pay back. Or it could be they rented land from this rich man. Apparently, sometimes you might... If you were a farmer, but you couldn't afford your own land, you would say, I will farm these, these fields for you, or I will farm these, these olive trees, and I will give you a portion of what I grow. So you don't have to own your own land, but you can make a living by using someone else's land and giving them a portion of it, even as much as 50%. So the rich man would expect that at the end of the year, that whoever was renting his land would be able to give him some of the proceeds. So the first one he meets here owes the master 100 measures of oil. And that's a, a Hebrew liquid measurement called a bath. The one bath is uh, 6 to 10 gallons, depending on who you're reading. By the way, this has nothing to do with our word bath in English. It's just a, but it's a, just a measure, uh, a liquid measure. And speaking of baths, I calculated it's maybe 50 to 20 bathtubs full. So that, that's a lot of oil. It's worth apparently three years' pay for a daily laborer. So you might work three years if you're a normal laborer to get that much oil for yourself. And one commentator says it's the yield of about 150 olive trees. So that, that's a lot of trees, a lot of oil that this this uh, debtor owed to the rich man. Now, just as a little background of the history or, or the times here, what was olive oil used for? We use olive oil for cooking, usually for for eating. Uh, but back in these days, they would use it for cooking as well, but they would also use it very often for lamps. That's how they would fuel their lamps, or for medicinal purposes, both internal and external. If they had tummy ache, they could have some, some olive oil. If they had some sort of skin irritations, they could use that as well. It was also used in religious ceremonies, like anointing. We see that often in the Old Testament, anointing your head with oil and so forth, like a, a king or a priest. It was also important in those days, they didn't have chapstick, they didn't have uh, eucerin or whatever, Vaseline, intensive care. They would use that in their dry climate to help th- with the dry skin. Uh, Psalm 23, verse 5, says, you, have, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now, in our day, that seems really strange. 
as a blessing to have your head anointed with oil? Who wants their head anointed with oil? Not me. We, we spend lots of money to get oil out of our hair, right? But they liked oil in their hair. It helped, helped with some, some dry skin, perhaps, or it helped them look more beautiful in their own eyes. Uh, Ruth 3.3, 3, this is an interesting story. And it's easy to skip this as you read the story of Ruth. But remember, Ruth is going to meet Boaz. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, gives her this advice. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Now, you mothers out there, you ever say to your daughter, if you want to catch a man, what you got to do is take a bath, get on your fanciest clothes, and put lots of oil in your hair. (laughs) That's not likely to go over well with the young man. But that was what they did in those days. You wanted to make yourself beautiful, you put oil in your hair as part of your, your primping, I suppose. In fact, if you didn't use oil, that was a sign of distress or mourning. Daniel 10.3, Daniel says, I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. So oil, olive oil especially, was, was used often in these days. It was a very important part of their lives. Now the next debtor owed 100 measures of wheat, and that is called a kor, K-O-R-S, or sometimes spelled C-O-R-S. It's a Hebrew dry measurement. So a bath is a Hebrew liquid measurement. A kor is a Hebrew dry measurement. And one kor is about 10 bushels. I know some of you have some farming background, I guess. I don't know much about a bushel except it's a basket. But I did some some quick math and learned that uh, a bushel is about uh, 1.2 cubic feet. So we have 100 measures of wheat, 10 bushels, uh, no, no math. I'll take care of the math for you. About a thousand bushels, or about twelve hundred cubic feet. So imagine a cube of wheat, about ten feet on a side, and that's roughly the amount of wheat. So it's a lot of wheat. And one commentator says this was a yield of about a hundred acres. So the hundred measures of oil, about one hundred fifty olive trees per year, would produce that much oil. This would be a hundred acres. That's a lot of acreage of wheat to produce uh, that amount of of grain. And this was about 10 years' pay for an average. We would be able to buy that much wheat. So if you take your denarius every day and spend it only on wheat, it would take you 10 years to buy that much wheat for yourself and your family. So these were fairly large debts. Even for a rich man, that would be a large debt that he would want to get back, get repaid. And this manager lowered them substantially. He lowered the, the oil down to 50, so he halved that, and he took 20% off of the 100 measures of wheat. Now, the difficulty comes in some commentators as to whether this manager was being dishonest in lowering these charges. Some say he was eliminating his commission. So this manager might have either, as a normal part of business, he he puts a commission on top. So if you borrow 50, then he gets his cut. So he puts a little more above that. Maybe he's being fraudulent or dishonest. And so now he's taking back the money he added on top of the the 50 that his, his master Oh, hopefully this makes sense. Some people say that it's interest on the loan. So somebody borrowed 50 measures of wheat or, or oil, and then this rich man, being kind of a bad guy, was going to really charge him a lot of interest for this. And so by saying it's a commission or interest, it's either trying to make this unrighteous steward a good guy by taking by giving up on his commission or making the master the bad guy by saying this master was charging them exorbitant interest. 
But I think it makes most sense to say, no, this is all on this unrighteous steward. He's the only one in this story who's called unrighteous. So let's let's put all the blame on him. I think this unrighteous steward is just changing the receipts to the advantage of these debtors. They didn't have computers and blockchain and stuff to make sure that these these things weren't altered. You could just maybe take a, a piece of a paper or or the uh, a leather that they would use sometimes for this sort of purpose and maybe scratch it out and just change the numbers. That was something that would be fairly simple to do. And so he does this to help these debtors, but also, more importantly, he's trying to change it to his own advantage to change these numbers so that the debtors say, hey, I like this guy. I mean, who wouldn't like it if your bill got cut in half or by 20%? And it may be that the, the debtors didn't realize that there was fraud taking place. Remember, this manager has the authority to act on behalf of his his boss, his employer. And so if if you were at a store and you're buying something, uh, maybe some, some nice jewelry, and the, the salesman says, hey, I'll give you a half off this. Okay, I'll take it. You won't ask any questions. And maybe this the salesman's uh, taking money from his employer. We don't know that, but you'll be glad to take the discount. In any case, whatever the the fraud involved, whoever's the bad guy, this man was definitely making friends. This worldly-minded man who only cared about money was making friends from the people that owed his master money. And so this shrewd response comes about, and now he has ingratiated himself to these debtors. And what happens then? It's a little surprising, perhaps. You might think the master would get mad and want to put him in jail. But Luke 16 Verse 8 says, his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. This manager was wicked and dishonest, but he was smart. Uh, the master could hardly go back to the debtors now and ask for the original terms to be restored. That would make him look bad. And so he just lets us go. He praises the manager, he's, who he's already firing. Um, but he, this manager took care of himself at the expense of his master. And it was, again, wicked, but it was very smart of him to do so. What's the point of this parable then? The second half of verse 8. Jesus here says, The sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And this term, sons of this age, or sons of light, you might often, as you read your Bible, sometimes the translators will translate it out. They'll say people of the light or children of the light. But you kind of miss this, you call it a Hebraism. It's a way of talking about certain kinds of people. When you use the term sons of, it's often used as a term for those who have something or who belong to something. You might remember some cases that talks about a son of peace. That that means somebody who is a peaceful person. Remember the sons of thunder? Who are the sons of thunder? Yeah, James and John. They're called sons of thunder. That means they were people who sort of had thunder in their personalities. They were those who belonged to thunder. Or you might remember the sons of Belial, those sort of sons of Satan. Or a son of hell or of Gehenna, people who belong to hell or who, who are in that sphere of hell. Or Judas was called the son of, remember, perdition. He was a, somebody who belonged to perdition, somebody who belonged to a kind of eternal punishment. So sons of, you read that, you think sons of people who belong to something or who, who are involved in something, who are characterized by something. So here we have the sons of this age. These are the people who belong to this age, who are characterized by the age. The verse is those who are the sons of light, 
those people who have the light in them. So we have the people of this age, the people who have the light of God. Turn to John 12. We see Jesus talking about the light, as he often does, as John often does in his gospel. Mentions light frequently with regard to Christ. But let's just look at John 12, verse 35. And Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you, speaking, of course, of himself. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. So there's a term again, sons of light. We have the light of Christ, and so we are called sons of light. And listen to First Thessalonians four or five verses four and five, speaking out the day of the Lord. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of light nor of darkness. So those who know Christ are sons of light because the light has shined on us. We possess the light ourselves. And so Jesus here, back to Luke 16, says the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. That is, the wicked are smart about how they go about getting what they want. They want treasures on earth, so they plan ahead, they make friends to get what they want on this earth. And what about the sons of light? Are the sons of light smart about getting what they want? Not that they want earthly treasures, but they want heavenly treasures. Are we as Christians, sons of light, are we intelligent, smart, deliberate about how we go about getting our heavenly treasures? The sons of this age and the sons of light have different goals, but do Christians have the same energy, devotion, commitment, and wisdom in how we pursue God? That's the lesson of this parable. What effort are we putting forth as the sons of light to pursue the things of God, the things of heaven? So Jesus now, he's given us the parable's point. He's going to go on to give us an exhortation. Verse 9, back to Luke 16. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. And he, don't, don't skip this part quite yet. He says, I say to you. It's easy to skip over that. Well, obviously he says to you, he's speaking, right? But this is an important thing to notice here. When Jesus says, I say to you, or I tell you, or truly I say to you, or truly, truly I say to you, depending on which gospel you're looking at, Jesus is emphasizing a point. This is something that's very important. You could underline it, you might say. Put it, highlight it somehow. He's saying here that this unrighteous steward, who is clearly a son of this age, he cares about this age, he made friends for himself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. So that when that failed, that is, he lost his job, those friends would welcome him into their temporal dwellings. Now what about the sons of light? They are to make friends for themselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when that failed, their own money failed, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. So the unrighteous steward looked forward to the temporal dwellings. We look forward to the eternal dwellings. And the lesson, of course, here from Luke 16 is not to be dishonest with money. Jesus isn't saying, uh, steal money to give to church, right? You would never do that. That's breaking the Eighth Commandment. But we are to make friends for ourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. And this term wealth might have a, a note in your margins. This is mammon. We know, we've seen this word before, mammon. It's an Aramaic word. It has to do with wealth. We see it also in 
Verses 11, unrighteous wealth. And verse 13, you cannot serve God in wealth or God in mammon. And it's a little surprising that Jesus calls material wealth unrighteous. And I think here he's exaggerating to make a point about the relative importance of it compared to eternity. Uh, we won't have wealth of that kind in heaven. There'll be streets of gold. That means we'll be walking on the things, that the stuff that we would treasure on earth. We want to pile gold in our closets, wouldn't we? We had it. But in heaven, we just walk on it. That's so common. This is like rocks. It's like asphalt on this world. That's what gold is in heaven. It's so uh, unimportant. We don't want to forget that wealth is a blessing from God. We don't want to be like the some of the monks of old who would give away all their possessions and have nothing and then be dependent on other people to give to them, to support them. Remember Deuteronomy 8.18 says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. One of the promises of the covenant God made was to lead them to a land that's flowing with milk and honey. It was a, a promise not only of eternal blessings, but of material blessings, of temporal blessings. And God was good to the people of Israel as they followed him to, to give them what he promised. And there were many righteous people in the Bible who were materially blessed by God. We have Job, Abraham, and many others. But we need to be wise, Jesus says here, with our material wealth to help those in need, to bless others. Our wealth isn't given to us just to indulge ourselves, but to help others. However much we have, a lot or a little, the money we have will fail. Whether it goes first, which is all too common, or whether we go first, that money we have accumulated will be gone. So use it well while you can. You might remember the rich man back in Luke 12.20. God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? This rich man had plans for the future. He was going to make more money, tear down his barns, build bigger ones to hold more stuff. And yet his soul was required of him, and now who will own what you have prepared? Who knows? This man wouldn't. He wouldn't have it in heaven. He wouldn't have it in hell. He would have nothing. And so Jesus is saying here, verse 9, if we are generous with our unrighteous mammon, with the wealth we have on this earth, when we get to heaven, the people we've shared it with will gratefully remember our kindness to them. I found a number of verses on this topic, and I was a little surprised, frankly, to, to see them all together. But just, just listen carefully as I read some passages. Luke 6.35 But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Luke 11, or 12.33, Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes in nor moth destroys. Luke 14, verse 12. He went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So in Luke 6, if you do good with your money, your reward will be great from God. 
Luke 12.33 says, when you give to people, you will get unfailing treasure in heaven. And as we saw in Luke 14, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So very often Jesus talks about being generous with your money. It's not just because it makes people happy, which is good. Not just because it helps them, but when you do that, you will get treasures in heaven. Very often links giving on the earth to treasures in heaven. One last verse, or one passage rather on this. Matthew 25. And remember, we're talking about helping those on the earth and getting treasures in heaven. Matthew 25, this is the sheep and goats judgment. And the king says to those on his right, Matthew 25, 34, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So you get this kingdom from the father. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 